It's a pleasure to be teaching here again. And I just want to begin by saying that every one of us in this room and everyone, I would say, in the world, whether we believe it or not, we want change. There's something innate in every human being. As much as sometimes we hate change, something deep inside of us is always crying out that I want change. And there's, a lot, there's lots of different things that we want change for in our lives, but I'd say probably the biggest things that we want are those things that are going to change in our lives that are going to send us on some kind of trajectory, right? But we want either material things, we want a house, we want a car, we want maybe status, we want this new job, this promotion at work. We want personal things like romantic relationship, a partner, a spouse in life. And we want all those things because we believe somewhere that in that experience or in gaining something, our lives are going to be profoundly changed and we're going to be set on a trajectory. And we all hope for this so deeply and so badly, don't we? Well, tonight we're going to be finding an experience that one man had of an encounter that he had, one experience so dramatic so instantaneous and so immediate that changed the complete trajectory of his life forever. Nothing was the same after this experience. And we find such an experience in our passage tonight of Isaiah 6. Right? So in the passage, I'm going to look at three things. I'm going to look at first the commissioner. I'm going to look at the commissioned. And I'm going to look at the commission. And through our, our study of this tonight, we're going to see that, this is essentially my thesis, okay? We're going to see that God uses his righteous decrees to both exercise judgment and to provide hope through his servants, whom he saves and sanctifies and cleans in order to move his redemptive purposes forward in the world. All right, that's, that's a mouthful, and we're going to break that down. But that's where we begin. So, if you look with me, we'll start in verse 1, and we're going to see this great commissioner. It says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In the year that King Uzziah died, let's just start there. King Uzziah king reigning 192 years after the divide of the kingdom. Of the 20 kings of Judah, he's the 10th in line. He's a good king, but just as him and his dad and his grandfather, they all have just one blemish on their record. And, it, and the way that they're introduced in the book of Kings, which is the narrative historical portion of this part of the story, the same thing is said about all three of them. First Kings 15, three and four says, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. So you can see there's this condition still. There is a, a, a laden idolatry. There's still sacrifices being made to other gods. And it is in the midst of this situation that we see God pulling Isaiah into this vision 
and he's laying this vision out for Isaiah, and he's, he's going to do a couple of things. But before I go to that, it says, He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. What's interesting about the way that this text is laid out, it says, The King Uzziah died, and the Lord was sitting upon a throne. If you look in your Bible, it's not all capitalized, right? All capitalized means the personal name of God, Yahweh. But this is the Lord. This is Adonai. Think about the foil here. The King Uzziah dies, but the Lord is sitting on his throne, high and exalted, lifted up. And it's, it's, the, it's the name for the Lord that we use to describe the sovereign Lord, this King. And he's sitting upon his throne, and he's high and exalted. Verse 2, it says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And the seraphim, this, this word seraph is actually uh, associated with the word in Hebrew that comes from the, the verb to burn. Right? It has to do with kind of a, like when a snake will bite you and the venom is burning your skin. That's kind of, that's kind of where, you, where you get this association from. And so their names are the burning ones. And you might be asking, okay, so God is sitting high and exalted up on his throne. There's these seraphim, these angelic creatures that are flying around him and they're covering themselves. What, is, what, what exactly is that? And the two coverings of the face have to do with something that we'll talk more about later. But essentially what they're doing is they're saying, God, you are so holy, you are so righteous, so majestic, that we dare not even look at you. We dare, we dare not even uncover our eyes to behold our glorious God. The two that they're covering the feet with are a sign of humility. You know, feet in some Psalms and other places in the Old Testament had to do with talking about what you do with your life, your will, your autonomy, your decisions, your paths. And by the covering of the feet, it's symbolizing that they are submitting themselves wholly. They're, they're not even uh, rising their wills up to, to try to act any differently than what God would have them do. They're just completely submitted to him. And so Isaiah walks in, and he sees the scene of the Lord sitting upon the throne, these angels who are prostrate. And I wonder sometimes, you know, we, we live in... Hi, guys. Sorry. It's okay. Come on. We live in California, right? And... You know, you know, in California, we're, we're very casual, and I grew up in California, and so, you know, I really appreciate the fact that we can be so casual, but sometimes I wonder if we are too casual, that when we approach God, that we don't approach Him with reverence. We don't approach Him with awe. Like, are, are you coming in, in the presence of God, flippantly? And I'm not talking about the physicality, the clothing, and things. I'm not, I'm not too concerned about that. But, I, but I'm asking, what is the posture of your heart when you walk into God's presence? When you're in prayer? When you're with the people of God? Do you know that God is residing in those people? And do you treat them as such? Are, are you reverent before God? And so the verse continues. 
In verse 3, he says, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And, and that phrase there, holy, 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 is the most expressive phrase that any Hebrew could make. It, it is only used here three times to describe with one word, one thing, and the most important thing in all the world. It's used to describe God himself. And the holiness is something that we kind of have a hard time maybe grasping, right? We've heard probably otherness, uh, uniqueness, set-apartness. What I want us to think is that we have categories of things in the world, right? We have you know, categories of animals and plants and birds and trees. Categories of all kinds of different things. Things we've made, things that have been created. Well, God in himself is, first of all, above creation, right? So he doesn't fit into any of the created categories. And so, in some sense, God breaks all classes. God breaks all categories. There is no way that you can slot God into any kind of category that we might say. There are no other gods. There is no other created thing. It's all just God. He's just holy. And that's all. That's all. But what makes God so holy? If the holiness has to do with his complete uniqueness, what is it that makes him so holy? Well, there's a lot of different things. The, the word in, in Hebrew means, and Jared has said this before, it's talking about like a heaviness. You know, uh, this, this glory is a heaviness. Okay? Other, other terms that we use to associate with it is power or authority. And oftentimes, whenever we think of the word glory, we think of beams of light or radiance. And I, I think that is fine. Um, we see his, his glory in creation. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So we see that as uh, his beauty in creation. We see it in his spiritual transcendence. Paul to the Athenians says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And so he is spiritually transcendent above creation. But the thing that we probably don't think about is that he's holy in his character. There is no person, no thing, that perfectly has the character of God. And such character can be seen in an illustration that I'll share with Moses in Exodus 33 and 34, when he goes on the mountain after the Israelites had broken the first covenant. He goes up and he pleads with God. He says, God, if you do not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will all the nations know that you are our God if you do not come with us? And, God, and, and Moses please, he says, God, show me your glory, right? Remember this. And what does God say? God instructs him, he says, okay, in the morning, go up on the mountain and go into the cleft of the rock, and I'll lay my hand over the covering, as a covering, and I will pass before that rock, and all of my glory and all of my goodness and my name will pass. And just as I've passed, because you can't see my face, 
I'll lift my hand and you'll see all my glory pass. And so what happens? Moses does as God commands him to do. He goes on to, into the mountain and as God passes, he says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You would have thought that God would have, I don't know, burned the entire mountaintop or lifted up the mountain and thrown it into the sea. or You would have thought some awesome and glorious display of power. But he just lists character qualities. And so I just want us to think about that. We think creation, we think power, we think transcendence. We often just miss he's holy and completely different because he's of completely different character than all things. He's perfect. And so the vision continues. Isaiah, standing there, listening to the seraphim sing the song. And all of a sudden, in verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And we might be wondering, man, what, what is this? And, you know, I was talking about his glory in terms of his character, but here's maybe a, a, a display of his glory in terms of his sheer power. Just the voice of God will shake the foundations of the door of his temple. The stone which the doors are planted into will shake simply at his voice. And the smoke will come like incense in the temple to shroud his, his image so that it will essentially be a mercy to those who are there. And this is that great commissioner, God Almighty, in his temple, sitting on his throne. And any who would dare come and see a host of angels attending to him and singing praises. Is that real in your hearts? Is that the God that you learned about growing up in Sunday school. This is the awesome, mighty, powerful God who has no class, no comparison. And what now, with all of that being said, all of that just right before Isaiah's eyes, what does he do? What does he say? Verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And there's no, there's no way unless you actually experience this, you would be able to know what Isaiah is feeling in this moment. Right? I mean... The best way that I could kind of think about this is just have you imagine your worst nightmare. I'm, get grave, you know, get, get as grave as you can, get as extreme as you can, your worst nightmare, your deepest pit, the thing that you most, that you don't want to happen in your life, the last thing you want to happen in your life, the very last. Get to the end of that, find that. And when you find that, 
just imagine that bad snap. <laughs> That just happened. That thing that you just absolutely, the last thing that you don't want to happen, just happened. What fear, what trembling, what dread would come upon you if that were to happen to you? And it just ask the question, it's so extreme, you know, we, we often use the phrase, woe is me, but we use it casually, right? We say, oh, you know, I didn't, I didn't really do as well as I thought I was going to do. Woe is me. You know. But this is not that. This is woe is me. This is frightening. This is terrible. This is threatening my whole existence. And we ask why? Why such an extreme response? He offers his reasons. Three different reasons why. And it begins with four. Right? First one. Four, I'm a man of unclean lips. The second one, joined by the and, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And the third one, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Right? And so the implication here, if you think about this, if you work through this you know, sequentially, you have first Isaiah saying, I am a man of unclean lips. I don't understand, if you read that in the beginning, what the big deal is. But if we recall what Jesus has said about the mouth, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so even if you're just unclean in your lips, that will essentially infect your heart. And so you become completely unclean simply because of your mouth. One thing ruins the whole. And perhaps this is also why Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, in essentially telling them to exercise church discipline, says, a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. Right? And so thinking about this, if we're going to stand before God and we're going, to, we're going to behold His glory, if there is one little thing that we've broken, whether it's our mouths, or it's our mind, or it's in our heart, or it's our hands, one way in which we've sinned, we are ourselves unclean completely. At the same time, if there's a person, Isaiah is saying, it's not just because of me, and even if I wasn't the one who committed the sin, look at all the people that I dwell in the midst of. I'm guilty because of them. And so when Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, I think he's really hammering away at them, and he's saying, guys, don't let sin dwell in your midst. Because what does it do? It spreads. It spreads. One part of the body spreads. One person spreads. And so I wonder, as... You know, as we meet week in, week out, and we have our fellowship meet, meals, and, and we fellowship with each other outside, and, you know, we get coffee and dinner and all these things, I wonder, when we're meeting like that, and we're, we're dwelling in the presence of God, do you know of unrepented sin in somebody's life? Are you yourself coming to those meetings? 
with unrepented sin? Are you going to let it dwell and fester? Are you going to let it be in our midst? Is that what we're going to? Is that the kind of church that we're going to be? Is that how we're going to, rev, you know, uh, with reverence, approach our God together? Just some things to think about, right? Uh, the the Lord's Supper, right? We symbolically and in remembrance take the body and the blood of Christ and we're taking that. And when we take that, are we in a condition of sin ourselves? Did not Jesus say that if you're at the altar and you're about to make your sacrifice but you have some qualm with your brother, why not better to leave your sacrifice and to go and make up with your brother and then come back with a right heart and a right standing before God and make the sacrifice? Right? And so, if we're going to commune with God in His holy communion, then I just want to challenge you that we ought to be clean. We ought to be pure when we do those things. Uh, you shouldn't go to a bank. And so, we have here now two, we have three reasons, but essentially we have two truths. And why is Isaiah saying, woe is me? He's saying, woe is me, because there's two truths that are happening here simultaneously. One, he's in sin, and he's among people who are in sin. But two, he's seen the king, the Lord of hosts, this one whom we've already described as being perfect, holy, unique, and especially in character in righteousness, in moral virtue, perfect. And that is the question that drives all the Old Testament, and I think it drives straight to the New, and I think it drives straight into our lives today. We must answer the question, how can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? How, how, can the whole, how can a holy God dwell in you if you are a sinful person? And, and that is the question that we must all face at some point in our life. And what happens here, the, the implicit thing that Isaiah is saying is if you don't deal with that, if you don't resolve those two conflicts, then what happens is you are lost. What that means, uh, some translations say destroyed ruined, silenced. You cease. God is a holy light. He is an all-consuming fire. And He burns so brightly that if any sin, any darkness were to just come to the fringes of where He is, it would be completely obliterated. When you turn the lights on, the darkness doesn't stay. It leaves immediately. And it can't stand. And so what are you going to do? Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I just want to draw three things here first. Uh, God initiates this atonement. Right? 
Essentially, atonement, kind of, maybe it's a big word, just means he makes him clean. Right? He essentially cleanses what was dirty about him. Again, the coal is burning. Uh, just going back to seraphs, the burning ones, um, the holiness of God being described as an all-consuming fire, and now this burning coal is coming to atone for him. And you can't see this necessarily in English, but the tenses in the Hebrew point to the fact that once this atonement happens, once this cleansing happens, it's instant and it's complete. It's not a process, it just happens all at once, and once it happens, it happens. And so, as we think about the question of what will you do with the issue of dwelling as a sinner in the midst of a holy God, God points us to some remedy here, that there is some way to atone for sin, right? There is some way. And in the Old Testament, as we've been reading, we know that it's the Mosaic Law. It's the Levitical system, right? You sacrifice countless multitudes of animals, and God will accept that to make us clean and acceptable to him again. In the new, we have something greater. Are you ready if you do not know God? If you stand before this throne room at the end of your life, and if you're jarred with the reality of this awesome God, and you've heard this tonight, and you hear about his perfect character, this character that casts out all sin and darkness, are you ready to stand before that thrice holy God? What will you say? Will you be like Isaiah? Will you say, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of unclean people? Or will you try to justify yourself? I say, well, God, let me, let me step up here and let me just list off some things for you. Well, I did this with my life, I did this with my life. I helped that grandma across the street once. Mm -hmm. I did this, I did this, I did this. And yet, you can't. You absolutely can't justify yourself before God. There's no, there's no just way to do that. You know, we... we a lot of us being younger and, and in this generation, we, we get wrapped up in causes real fast, right? Um, social causes, social justice, there's all kinds of things. And, and in some ways, that's great. And, and I applaud people who are, who are very zealous to ensure that sex trafficking and all those things don't happen, you know? Um, I very much applaud that. When I see somebody like that, I see they have the zeal. I wish they would have that zeal for the Lord, and some do. But I see the zeal in them. Like, like justice must be had, you know? Justice must be enforced and exercised. And it doesn't feel right in my soul until that happens. Something has to be done. And unfortunately, church, if you, if you don't have any covering when you walk into the throne room of God, Justice must be served on you. There is no other way. It would be completely unjust if the punishment wasn't laid. So I'm not going to say that we have a type here in the coal, but we do see a parallel. 
that in the coming of Jesus Christ, in the sending of God's only Son, and in the slaughter of Him, a perfect Son who lived a perfect life, who was truly God and truly man, was not just killed by Romans. No, he was crucified. And when he was crucified, all the wrath of God, which you and I would deserve for all the sins that we've committed in our lives, for sinning against an infinitely holy and perfect God, is laid on him. And he screams there in agony, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? But it was in the perfect plan of God. And it was God's will to crush him. And so he is resurrected because living a sinless life, death cannot hold him. And he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And what he says to you today is come. Come. There is free, free atonement for your sins and you don't have to work for it you don't have to live a perfect life you just come believe in Jesus Christ repent of your old life and if the Holy Spirit should so change your heart that you would change then that righteousness transfers from him to you and when you walk into the throne room of God, you can walk in holy. And you can say, I'm not here upon my own merits. I am not. I am a sinner. I was born in sin. I will die in sin. But you know what? I have the gospel. And I have Jesus Christ who died for me and who took on all of that wrath. And I can stand before you, God. I can stand and look up to your throne and I can say, I am not here because of me, but I am here because of my love and the love of Jesus Christ for me. It's the only atonement that he offers. And would you be so foolish, oh soul, would you be so foolish as to not accept such a gracious offer? And so the question is, are you converted? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? And, and you know, this is a heavy message. And, these are, these are heavy truths, an awesome, glorious, holy God. But I hope that you can see that on the backdrop of all this holy righteousness and majesty and power, there is love in the gospel. There is so much love that he miraculously brought these two completely opposing things and sealed them together and offers them to you. You never have to ask the question anymore. What do I do to dwell with God? I am a sinful person because it's covered in Jesus Christ. And so, what does God now say? Isaiah's cleaned as a servant. Well, he's going to become a servant. It says in verse 8, let's keep going. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? Then I said, Isaiah speaking, here I am, 
send me. And typically, I've been talking about approaching God reverently this whole time. This is an imperative. This is a command with an exclamation point. And I don't know if there's any other more appropriate place to, to come before God with an imperative when he's saying, who shall do my work? Who shall serve me? I don't know if there's any other time that you should be speaking an imperative to God than saying, yes, God, I will do your will. I will be the one, send me. And what's really funny is, as I think about, you know, you know a, lot, a lot of folks in our church are striving in Hollywood, right? And we want to, essentially we want to make it. But there is this dynamic of when you get starstruck, right? You meet somebody, and somewhere deep in your heart, you're kind of hoping, I hope they recognize me, or I hope they acknowledge me, or, or I hope they see something unique in me. I hope they would like give attention to me, you know? And probably, and you know, if I, there's people in my life who I would probably say, if I met them and they took a liking to me, I would want to be with that person as long as I could be with them. And if I had an ongoing relationship with them, I would just, I would soak it up, man. I would, I would just, hey, what are you doing for breakfast? You know? And then two hours later, hey, what are you doing for lunch? You know, like, just just go for it, you know? Because you just, you just like that person. You just want to be around them. And look at what happens to Isaiah here. I think this is, this is why he responds the way he responds. Because he is so blown away by what just happened having the complete fear of just about to be obliterated, and God just changes his whole condition, and he says, now who is going to go for us? And if I was Isaiah, I would be doing the same thing. Like, God, you are awesome. You are amazing, and you saved me from my own ceasing to exist. Like, I will go for you. Don't send anybody else. Send me. Send me. And so let's see what God will have him do. And, you know, a lot of sermons on this passage would end here. And uh, I, would, I would be remiss if I were to end it here because there's just a lot that can be said and, and we're going to go through this. But um, I think a lot would want to just end on a big bang and just say, all right, here I am, Lord, send me. And, okay, guys, let's all get up and, all right, be sent. But I, but I want to look at this because this is going to show some things about the Old Testament that maybe you've never thought of before. Okay. So in verse 9, he continues. The Lord says, Go and say to this people, that is the people of Judah, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. You know, at this point, it, it's just really difficult for some to accept that God is just judging Judah. I, I mean, after this point, this is his decree for his servant Isaiah. God is judging him, or judging them through him. What he's saying is, essentially, uh, go tell them the truth. Tell them the truth about what they're doing. 
as I referenced earlier, first kings, they did what was right in the Lord except for the Asherah, uh, the high places that they were sacrificing. And as you guys were reading through verse or chapter one, chapter five, I'm sure right off the bat, chapter one, you're in the you're in the courtroom of God, and he's saying, Woe to you, Judah. These are all the things you've done. I mean, in summary, you've oppressed the poor and you've turned away from me. And that's what he's saying. And so there's, there's no turning back. And where a lot of people would say, maybe God is just being kind of mean here or being kind of unjust, I would say God is being faithful. He's being faithful. Why? Because it's in the covenant. We have time, but... Uh, have a note or something, just put down Deuteronomy 28 and just go there and, and you'll see why God essentially, as the people break the covenant, God has to stay faithful to his covenant and a part of the covenant was unfortunately their judgment if they should disobey and it's been 10 generations and they're disobeying and so God has no choice, I mean he has to stay in line with his own covenant, right? And so he says to them, he essentially says, go and harden these people's hearts. And when that happens, there's a certain point. This is, this is a process that takes place over time, right? And at a certain point, as people's hearts get hardened, they can't return anymore. There is a point where they can't return. And what I also want to show here is that the way in which he's hardening in the heart is through the word of God. In the proclamation of truth. Isaiah is going out and he's dispensing truth to all the people, right? And he's saying, essentially, they're going to hear you, they're going to see you, and their hearts are, are, are going to be a, a beating, but they're not, they're not going to receive you. They're not going to understand. And they're, and they're going to essentially reject you. And so, today, when, when we stand under teaching, right, when we come here on Wednesday nights, or you guys listen to podcasts, or uh, studying the Bible on your own, um, you know, we don't have prophetic visions, we're not getting uh, revelation from God, and we're not saying, hey, Keely, you know, I really think that, you know, God is telling me that, man, uh, Clayton is just such an awesome guy, and I think you should, yeah. just, you should just get him, like, you know, well, you already have a chiropractor, but you should just get him, like, 20 massages. Yeah. So God's not speaking to us like that. But God has spoken to us in his word. Right? And this is the word of God. God is speaking when we read this. And so, when we sit and teach in, or as, as you're reading the word, or being exposed to the word, let me ask you this. Where are your ears? Where are your eyes? Are they somewhere else? And what is the condition of your heart? And if you're rejecting the word of God, and you find yourself in an increasing pattern of going down and rejecting it, my friends, there's no middle ground. You can't stay neutral when you hear truth. It's either you are heading toward the truth and you are leading to healing and repentance and blessing, or you're heading away from the truth and you're stacking condemnation on yourself 
for the hardening of your heart and not accepting Jesus Christ. And so it is a dangerous thing that we are all doing. And I just say, if, if there are those of you in the room right now that you're having a hard time and you're reading scripture and you're just feeling like it's not happening, you know, it's just appetite is not there, or, or you just feel so maybe embittered, thought about something, I would just say, tell somebody. You know, pray to God. Talk about it with somebody. Don't, don't go on like that. It is a dangerous thing to be growing harder and harder against God. I mean, pr pray, stay up all night, fast. Do whatever you need to do. Don't continue down a path of hardening. And so we'll finish up the, the verse portion of this. It said, and Isaiah, woefully so, you know, I don't, if we think about, you know, if I, if I think about ministry, if even you guys think about ministry in your own context, I don't think any of us wants to hear, okay, God, I, I want to serve you in ministry, I want to serve you in ministry, what, what am I going to do? And he just tells you, you're going to do this, oh, and by the way, people are going to hate you, oh, and by the way, everything you say, they're going to reject, oh, and by the way, you're going to be persecuted, and by our church history's tradition, you're going to be sawn in half by one of the kings. <laughs> I mean, I'd be like, God, maybe not here I am. Maybe don't send me. I mean, that just shows you that God will still get glory if you fail. Even if your failures in ministry should lead to your own disappointment or your discouragement, if you are faithful to do what God has called you to do, you are by no means a failure. And so he asks, how long, O oh Lord, how long must I say to these people these things? How long must I allow them to harden their hearts? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And so I've been talking much about the spiritual judgment, the spiritual nature of God, but here we just see the physical destruction of the nation of Judah. And as we've, as we've read and as we'll read, Judah is wiped out by the Babylonians. <laughs> Babylon. But it's not, it's not the Babylonians that ultimately destroy the people. It is God, and it is his judgment on the people. But even in the midst of so much difficult, heavy judgment, at the very end, you see, holy seed is its stump. And the imagery that comes to mind is the stump, and all the forest has been essentially cut down, and you have these stumps everywhere. And he's saying, even if a tenth remain, even those stumps are going to be burned. But the holy seed is a stump. And you can just see, and it still happens, that even if a stump has been burned, cut down, a sprout can come up. And so here you see this just little glimmer of hope 
at the end, some very, very strong judgment. And people go back and forth about what this is. In my estimation, this is the, the seed of the nation of Judah. This is what we call the remnant. Right? And some of you guys maybe have heard that before, but essentially it's the remaining people whom God is going to select. And when a judgment like this comes, it just you just ask the question, okay, God, you're, you're faithful to your covenant, you're faithful to the, to the Mosaic covenant because you're judging us. But what about these other covenants you've made? What about the Abrahamic covenant? What about the Davidic covenant? Now, what about this, this promised Messiah that's going to come? What about, uh, you know, restoration of the nations? What about David's eternal throne? And you see in a, state, a small statement like this that God is still fulfilling his covenant. But the people will be judged, the people will be thrown out of the land and will be utterly destroyed. God is still going to fulfill those two covenants. And so, I just want to now, in these last moments, pan out a little bit and just look at what happens here. And I just want us to see the parallels in our life to Isaiah, right? Isaiah has this vision of the Lord. He is essentially thrust into the throne room of God. He is beholding the glory of God. And he recognizes his sin. Right? And he cries out, woe is me. And then God cleanses him with the, with the coal. Right? And then immediately following, God asks, whom shall go for us? Whom shall we send? And Isaiah goes, here I am, send me. Right? And is this not a picture of the role that the gospel plays in a believer's life? Mm -hmm. You're under wrath from God. Somebody shares the gospel with you, tells you the good news of forgiveness of sin and eternal life in Jesus Christ. And you behold the glory of God. And you recognize your own sin and your own inability to save yourself. And you repent and you believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior. But it doesn't just end there. You know, if we all... We're going up to the throne room of God right now. You would have God the Father sitting high and exalted on his throne. But then you would have a new member. You'd have the Lamb of God sitting down at the right hand. And the Lamb of God says, Whom shall I send? Whom will go for us? And if you respond and you say, here I am. Here we are. Send me. Send us. What will he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Are you going to be a servant of God? After all of the grace, after the salvation that you have, are you going to respond? Are you going to say, here I am, send me? 
They're going to respond to this great commission of our Lord. And I want you to think about it. If, if it's not the love or grace of God that's going to drive you, think about your loved ones. Think about your friends who will stand before God in the throne room. But what will be their fate if you do not say anything? Who will go to tell them the gospel? If not for any other reason, for their souls. Fulfill this commission. So we see just from a single moment that Isaiah's life was completely changed. The trajectory of his life something that perhaps he wasn't even looking for. It's just completely, and in an instant, in a moment, altered forever. I would say if, if you're a believer and you've encountered Jesus Christ and he, has been, and he is your Savior, you've encountered the same God. So should not your life also change and the trajectory of your life change forever? I just pray for us, guys, that on the last day, when we all stand before God in the throne room, that he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me pray for us and then we'll be finished. God, your glory is so unmatchable. And your righteousness is more than we can ever attain to. But your love is so good to us too. And your love in the gospel of Jesus Christ serve as our burning coal. And may we, Lord, as renewed, cleansed, justified in you, be people who are eager and say, here I am, send me. And we will fulfill this great commission which our Lord gave us before he left. Help us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.